0: wanted to begin by saying to us this morning that the title of my message this morning is The Reconciling Work of Christ. The Reconciling Work of Christ. And you remember in our previous studies that you can view online as well, that the the purposes that Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church, there were three purposes. Do you recall what those were? One of them was to inform them of his circumstances because he's writing from Rome under house arrest. The second was to hopefully mature mature the believers in Colossae. He wanted to lead them to somewhat higher ground. And then third, and of importance this morning as well, is he wanted to correct or refute what was called the Colossian heresy. It was a unbiblical and heretical teaching that had started to infiltrate into the town of Colossae, and Epaphras had brought Paul news of that heresy to himself there in Rome. And the Colossian heresy, as I've mentioned a couple weeks ago, was a combination of, of mysticism, Judaism, and Gnosticism. Big words, right? Predominantly... Uh, Gnosticism being the greater part. And the Gnostic believed, those that were trying to uh, fuse these beliefs with fundamental gospel theology, they believed that the material world was bad, but that the spiritual world was good. That everything on earth was bad. But the things in the spirit were good. They believed that there was some divine spark that took place somewhere uh, that was the thing that made man capable of being redeemed. They believed that salvation was only available through a secret knowledge, and finally that since a good God could have not could have, let me read this since. A good God could not have created an evil world. This world must have been created by an inferior, ignorant, or evil God. Okay? That was what they were believing, and that's what they were seeking to impart to Christians in Colossae. Hence, is why Paul dealt with the supremacy of Christ. Last week, we looked at that in depth. Verse 15, if you want to back up a little bit, uh, Paul tells them that he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So he is again addressing the supremacy of Christ in in the creative work. And now what he is going to do is take them a step further and introduce to his readers what we are calling and is clearly The reconciling work of Christ. And there's a reason for that. You see, once all of the creative work was done, and who was it done by? Jesus. All things were created by Him and for Him, right? So once the creative work was done a problem occurred. What problem? A a problem that would need reconciling. Verse 20, we read it, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven or uh, or things in heaven. And you ask yourself a question, rightfully so, what things would have needed to be reconciled? He states it there in the verse. Things in heaven and things on earth. And I want to take it one step at a time. The things in heaven and the things in earth that Christ is is going to by him to reconcile all things that he is going to reconcile. And so the problem that occurred the first thing that needed to be reconciled was a heavenly problem. It was a problem that was manipulated and brought forward by none other than Lucifer. It was a rebellion. I'll share with you some verses. Isaiah 14, the prophet tells us, speaking under the inspiration of God, the prophet Isaiah says concerning Lucifer, Verse 12, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol and the lowest depths of the pit. You see, the first problem was this rebellion that took place in heaven itself. The Bible tells us that Lucifer was wanting to usurp the God Almighty, the very one who created him. We're also told, interestingly enough, about uh, if you've never read some of this, there's a clear description of Lucifer um, in Ezekiel 28. There's a, a, another prophecy. Now you understand about prophecy that it often has a near application and a far application. Do you know what I mean by that? Is that as a prophet speaks, oftentimes he's speaking about something that is happening right in that particular time period, but he's also, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking about something that will take place in the future. An example of that, before I share Ezekiel 28 with you, an example of near and far prophecy would be, of course, none other than than Daniel chapter 11. In Daniel chapter 11, Daniel speaks of something called the abomination of desolation which Antiochus Epiphanes did do as he went into the altar of the temple and set up a statue of Zeus. Now that was an abomination to God, an abomination of desolation. But Daniel was also looking forward in his prophetic utterance to a time in which the temple in Jerusalem would be entered by none other than an antichrist, and he would slaughter a pig on that altar and declare himself to be God. That is yet future. So here in Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel, the prophet, is speaking about something near and something far. In the near retrospect, he's talking about the king of Tyre, Tyre and Sidon. And he he goes on to explain about the king of Tyre and Sidon that he was extremely proud, thought he was indestructible in the first 10 verses of Ezekiel 28. You can read that later. But in verse uh, 13 of Ezekiel 28, the prophet shifts into speaking about Lucifer, Satan himself. I'll read it for you. Ezekiel 28, 13 speaking about the king of Tyre slash Satan. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. There's no way that the the king of Tyre in like 1400 BC was there at the beginning of human history in the garden of Eden. So you see the shift, you can hear the shift rather, Speaking of the king of Tyre, he says you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. God is speaking through Ezekiel about Satan and saying, you're a created being, and when you were in heaven, when you, in your original creation, your, your timbrels and your pipes were perfect. Many scholars and Bible students myself believe that Satan's role, Lucifer's role, in heaven before he fell was that he was like, he was like heaven's worship leader. Music originated in heaven, beloved. It didn't start down here. Its origin is in heaven and it was designed and created to elevate and exalt the almighty God. We're told in Revelation chapter 12 that Satan, when he was cast out of heaven, drew a third of the angelic host with him. Revelation 12, 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. And so this first problem that needs reconciling is a rebellion in heaven by none other than Lucifer. So I want to share with you the definition of uh, reconcile. Maybe we could put that up. Okay, so this is really important and if you don't take note, you can go back to this, but I want you to see this because it bears witness on what the Bible says Jesus did. Notice, this is according to Webster's Dictionary. Webster was a Christian. There are three definitions. First definition is to restore to friendship uh, or to reconcile factions. Now, uh, Uh, An adjunct to that is to settle or resolve uh, differences, to reconcile differences. So that's the first definition. Look at the second one. The second one is to make consistent or congruous to reconcile an ideal with reality. That's going to become important in just a moment. And the third one is to cause to submit to or accept something unpleasant, to reconcile to hardship. Now you might be saying, so okay, how, how does God Almighty, or even rather Jesus, how's he going to reconcile this problem in heaven created by Manipulated by Lucifer. Now, we know that Lucifer, uh, his name is Satan, also used 52 times in Scripture, also, day star, Isaiah 14 12, son of the morning, uh, the devil, the anointed cherub, the tempter, the ruler of demons, and on and on and on. And so, <coughs> uh, what's going to happen here is. God is going to say to Satan, he's going to say, look, you're trying to be God. You are not God. I am God. Out of heaven you go, and you're cast down to earth. And the only promise I have for you is an eternal abyss awaits for you. Now, how does that fit? Very simply, To make consistent or congruous to reconcile the ideal with the reality. The reality, Satan, is that you are not God. I am. And I'm going to cause you to submit and accept an unpleasant thing, an eternity in an abyss. I thought that that was extremely interesting. And so... Cast down to the earth, Lucifer goes. What happens? Many of you Bible readers know the story. He whispers into the ear of Eve a seed of doubt. How? What? He whispers a seed of doubt against the word of God. God tells Eve and Adam, Here's this beautiful garden. You may eat freely of everything except of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of it. And Eve is parroting that command to the devil, Satan, who appeared as a serpent. And she tells him what God said. And what was it that Satan does? He whispers in her ear, Genesis 3, 4 You'll not surely die. God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When at the core of his, God's desire for mankind was that he, he wanted them not to ever have to know evil. In, in other words, Satan is saying, you know what, hey, Let me reinterpret the word for you. And does he not still do that today? Where he seeks to take even scripture itself and begin to twist it and confuse individuals as to what God has actually said and what God actually means by what he said. Is there not confusion in the church today about what God has said? Where do you think that confusion comes from? doesn't come from God. And so she believes the lie, ate of the fruit, gave to her husband. Her husband ate. Their eyes were open. They both knew they were naked. Bingo. Ah, we've, we've disobeyed God. They want to go and cover their sin, their disobedience. So they seek to use a fig leaf. And God says, no, no, that's, that's not sufficient I'm going to cover you with the skin of an animal. We talked about this last week. And so an animal is killed. An innocent animal's blood is shed so that they can cover their sin with animal skin. And God speaks to the serpent. He says, On your belly you'll go, the rest your days, your life. You're not God, I am. Out of heaven you go. And the only promise I'm giving you that you will submit to is that there's an eternal abyss waiting for you. The thing in heaven reconciled. Now what about this thing on earth? Remember we said the verse, verse 20 said that by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So now, we bring our attention down to earth. What needs to be reconciled? Well, God's relationship with mankind, right? Here's Jesus, who is there at creation and is the creator as well. In that role, text makes it very clear. And he sees the heart of his father is that the heart of of God the Father was to just have fellowship with his most precious creation. Did you know that as a human being, you are God's most precious creation? There's nothing greater. You are precious in his eyes. And here he's looking at at this man and woman that he's created and his heart is broken, of course, because he's a just God and it must be dealt with. And uh, we could probably put this up there. I I think it's a description uh, of the definition of reconcile. What's happening is now Mankind who was intended to be a friend is no longer a friend of God. There's no harmony. He has now differences that separate him or her from their creator. What's that difference? Sin. The holiness of God, the sin of mankind. It's a difference that has separated them. The ideal, notice, the ideal was what? That... Mankind, his most precious possession, would have unbroken fellowship with God their entire life on earth. That was the ideal. The reality is now that that ideal no longer exists. And that ideal has been tarnished with the reality of sin. And so now mankind must submit that Third definition, mankind must submit to something unpleasant, a life lived in separation from God. Isn't it beautiful how Webster's definition just covers the whole thing? There's nothing out of order. And yet, verse 20 tells us that by him to reconcile, to reconcile that, Mankind is not a friend. Mankind has differences. The ideal has been tarnished by sin, and now man must accept an unpleasant reality. But he's going to reconcile that. How? We see it right there. In verse 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That's how. That's how he's going to reconcile the thing on earth that needs reconciling, the relationship of of God Almighty with mankind, his most precious creation. He's going to reconcile that through making peace through the blood of his cross. I don't know if this is interesting to you, but it was very interesting to me. You you think back to... um, when they were beating Jesus and scourging him and placing a crown of thorns on his head and the, the people were crying, crucify him, crucify him. Given the choice of Barabbas or Jesus. No, Jesus, crucify him. Led down Golgotha, the way of, uh, to Golgotha, down the uh, Via Doloroso, the way of suffering, up to Golgotha laid on that wooden cross, and boom, nails driven through his hands for you for me. Boom, nails driven through his feet. Ropes tied around that huge wood structure. Soldiers lifting it up to place it in the hole to hang there for hours while his chest cavity would give in. And to get a breath, he'd have to push up and take a breath, and then he'd have to get down again. And all the while, Satan, Lucifer, he's going, see? (laughs) I did it. I confused the plan of God. I win, I win. Wait a minute It's getting dark in the sky there's an earthquake I bet he began to wonder, though my own opinion, but what we have in text is second corinthians two seven we speak. The wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of, 2 Corinthians 2.8, which none of the rulers of this age knew. Satan would have been one of them, ruler of the age, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It was always in his plan. That Jesus was saying way back at creation when there needed to be a reconciliation with with God's precious creation of mankind. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This is how I'll do it. I'll do it through the blood of my cross. And 2,000, 4,000 years later, he fulfills it. And then Paul says in verse 21, as we read, and you, speaking to the Colossians, now wait a minute, didn't we just read in the Colossians earlier how Paul was giving thanks for them? They, they're so faithful, they they love the saints, they love God, they have the hope of the gospel, but now Paul clarifying the surprise supremacy of Christ the deliverance of God and now the reconciling work of Christ he says and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight you or you watching at home, God bless you for doing that. Stay with us. Hang in there. Come visit us if you're led to. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute. He's calling me someone who is alienated from God and always an enemy of God? That He can't be talking about me. I, I've, I knew Jesus when I was in Sunday school. I've kind of always been, I always kind of knew who God was. I, I remember at a very early age, just, Kind of thinking about Jesus and God. I I don't ever remember actually being, you know, uh, alienated from God or an enemy of God in my mind by wicked works. Maybe no one here is thinking that, but there's somebody watching that might be thinking that. He can't be talking about me. Well, You might be saying, I'm I'm not a serial killer. I'm not a terrorist. I'm actually a pretty nice guy, nice person. I I mean, I did a little bad thing here, bad thing But I'm, I'm really not bad. Well, Isaiah was a nice guy, loved God. Wanted to get close to God, wanted to follow what God's plan for his life was. And what did Isaiah say about himself? Sixth chapter of Isaiah, remember, he's brought into uh, the holy place. And he sees the Lord. You sing a song about that at times. I see the Lord seated on his throne, exalted. Isaiah 6. He says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah, this nice guy who loves God, wanted to follow God, serve God, got a vision of the holiness of God, he recognized that he was in fact an enemy of God, and he himself also was wicked. David, the patriarch, we all say, oh, man after God's own heart, right? But wait a minute, David writes to us in Psalm 14.3, he says, All have turned aside. They've together become corrupt. There is none that does good. No, not one. David including himself in that statement. The Apostle Paul, we would all say, well, wow, Paul, man, even before he got saved, he was kind of like, really close to God. He's just very legalistic. But then he meets Jesus on Damascus Road. He must have changed. Now he's Mr. Nice Guy, right? Mr. Acceptable in the eyes of God. But what does Paul say in the book of Romans concerning himself? He says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Say that with me. Nothing good dwells. And Paul writes about the church leaders of his day. In the book of Titus 3.3, 3, he says, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, deserving, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's what the church leaders were like before. Paul's talking about Kindness of God, when the kindness of God and the love of God, our Savior, toward men appeared. Who was the kindness of God and the love of God, our Savior, when he appeared? Jesus. When he appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing, the regeneration, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah put it this way as it relates to anything good you or I think we have done or ever have been. If there's any, any value in our life at all, and we go, you know what? That's probably acceptable in God. That might be righteous enough for his holiness. And Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 64, 6, that all of our righteousnesses are as a filthy rag. Hello? Revelation this morning that when Paul writes to the Colossian believer and says, and you who were once, there is not a person in this room, not a person watching at home. In fact, there's not one human being on the face of this planet that that statement does not include. It includes you and I. You might as well just go ahead and say, I was once alienated, and an enemy in God in my mind. He said, no, no, wait, no. I, from the earliest age, I kind of always remember th- thinking good thoughts about God well, or Jesus or something. Okay, you can have that memory, but that memory does not, listen, trump what God says in his word. That memory, however young you were, believing that you've always had good thoughts about God and Jesus, does not override the fact that Paul says at one time in your life, you were an enemy and alienated. And so this is how Jesus reconciles that truth. How? By the blood of his cross. That every individual, until a person cognitively, knowingly, comes to faith in Christ alone, and the acceptance of his blood on the cross as complete payment for the sin of all mankind and embraces that biblical truth to the point that it changes their life, that everything in their life prior to that is contained in the statement, you were once alienated and an enemy in your mind so this is how he reconciles it how does he reconcile it through the blood of his cross and notice what he does he restores friendship and harmony to mankind through the blood of his cross he resolves the difference that separated the, the sin of mankind and the holiness of god how through the blood of his cross he resolves that He makes consistent now the ideal of unbroken fellowship with God with the reality. Now in Christ we live and move and have our being. There's no reason for us. There's nothing that separates us from the love of God in Christ. We can be in constant unbroken fellowship. And yes, he does cause us to submit to And accept an unpleasant reality that we're all unclean. Only Christ is clean. And my faith in him is what causes me to be accepted in the eyes of the Father. That's the reconciling work of Christ, beloved. To me, that's like huge. And Paul doesn't stop there because this last verse in our passage this morning is, is very eye-opening. He says, in verse 23, to present you, uh, at the end of verse 22, to present you holy and blameless above reproach in his sight. That's how we're presented, is in the blood of Christ. He says, in verse 23, if indeed you, and then he goes on, if indeed you, And then he's going to give three things that are true of the Colossian believer. But we've got to to define that. Because there are some of you, or some watching or anyone reading, might get this glorious impression that all things are okay because of the blood of his cross and what he's done in the body of his flesh and we might come to verse 23 and go, well, well. wait a minute, it says if. And then it's going to say that it's if indeed I continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and not moved away from the gospel, uh, from the hope of the gospel which you heard. And if the if is conditionary, listen, If the if there is that all of the reconciling work of Christ in our lives is valid, true, and applicable only on condition of continuing in the faith, only on condition of being grounded and steadfast, and only on condition of not moved away, way not ever moved away from the hope of the gospel i'm not sure i would be okay me i'm not can't speak for you because i know in my life there was a period of time where i knew that jesus christ was the son of god and that i had accepted him as the son of god and accepted his work on the cross to take the penalty of my sin and saw him as a savior and placed him on the shelf as savior as I moved away from the hope of the gospel, as I walked away not being steadfast and grounded, as I did not continue in the faith, then I'd have to go to that if and say, oh my goodness, I'm without hope. Good news for you and I this morning. That if is not conditionary. You see, the word if, translated if in our English Bibles, uh, in the original uh, E-I-E, and this is a form of E-I, if you go all the way back to Matthew chapter 4 when Satan's talking to Jesus, You remember that passage and and Satan says to Jesus if you are the son of God cause these stones to be made bread. If you are the son of God then cast yourself down from this pinnacle. And what's beautiful beloved about that word if is that it though translated in our Bible when we often look at as a conditional, Satan was saying to Jesus, if you're the Son of God, no, he is the Son of God, and that word in those passages is translated more correctly, since you are the Son of God, cause these stones to be made bread. What what was Jesus' answer? He said, man shall not eat by bread alone, but by every word of God. And here... It is translated in the same way, seeing that you or because you. And if you follow the logistics of the passage, we're always supposed to study things in its context. Never just pull something out and go, ah, live or die on that. Put it in its context. And Paul has already said to the Colossians that in earlier verses that they are... um, uh, they love all the saints. They uh, have a hope laid up for them in heaven. That Paul has heard of that. Verses 3 and 4 and 5. So it follows that what he's saying, because you, in verse uh five and six, because you have a hope which is laid up for you in heaven, because we've heard that of your faith in Jesus Christ, because of your love for all the saints, because of how your faith is being lived out in your life, then I know that you are continuing in the faith. I know that you are grounded and steadfast I'm explaining this heretical teaching to you so that you don't fall to it. Epaphras has made me aware that you are continuing in the faith and that you have not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And so it follows that this reconciling work that Christ has done, we're going to summarize it, is that he has reconciled all things to himself through the blood of his cross. You and I and the Colossian believers seeing that we are continuing in the faith. You're sitting in church this morning, you're watching at home, Maybe you're watching at home someone comes across this video and says, well, I haven't been to church in a long time. Does that mean I'm continuing the faith? The very fact that you may be asking that question is proof positive that there may be a seed of faith that's causing you to wonder, am I okay in the eyes of God? Church attendance has nothing to do with uh, are you a Christian or not? Said it before, Keith Green Decades ago, going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. Can you say amen? amen? All right. Hopefully, there's a lot of people that come through the doors at a church that maybe aren't a Christian. What, what are we bringing them through the doors for? They can hear the good news of the gospel to know that Christ has taken their sin and offers them an eternal blessing of an eternity with God and if they will walk in his steps a life that is here so blessed filled with hardship yes suffering pain yes crisis and and difficulty yes but Christ our rock is who we run to so this morning The reconciling work of Christ, as we close, is simply, it's done. It's finished. It's happened. And the encouraging word from Paul to the Colossians and the Spirit of God to you and I is, hey, continue. Keep going. Remain grounded and steadfast. How do you do that? Right here. You are not going to get grounded and remain steadfast unless this is a part of your diet written into your heart. You might say, well, what about those Christians in Afghanistan right now that if they're found with a Bible on their phone or anything, they could be beheaded. What do you think the Christians in first uh, century A.D.? they They didn't have this. They maybe had a a piece of paphri or even one portion of a letter or maybe one letter but they had his word deep resting, abiding in their heart you you take up any of this and you begin to memorize it, let it go through the, the eye gate to the mind gate to the heart gate and guess what, the faith gate is going to con- start to grow be grounded and fed- steadfast unmovable so that you and you at home, and I, that we are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which is in us. The reconciling work of Christ. Powerful, powerful thing. If you've never committed your life to Christ, this morning is the time to do that. As you see, he's, he's taking it upon himself, the blood of the cross. His cross. And you can do that by simply inviting Him to forgive you of your sin. Come into your life and take over. Will you join me as we close in a word of prayer? Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the the truth and the fact that we have been reconciled to the Father through the blood of the cross of the Son. And now, The problem has been settled, the resolve has been made, the differences have been dealt with. And yes, we submit to the truth that nothing good dwells in us. So this morning, Lord, we are happy and blessed to say, we desire you to have your way and live your life through us. Because one day we're all going to get to heaven, those of us who have placed our faith in you. And when we get there, we're going to see this sight that Your servant John talked about in the book of Revelation that everyone, everyone in humanity is is already there that has come to faith in Christ and is declaring you as holy. Not because of what they've done, but because of what you've done, Lord. This morning we get to join them in advance and declare you and worship you as the Holy One of God. In Jesus' name, amen.